Well, hey, Bible Love, so glad you're back with us today. We are digging into the book of Isaiah, which is a very interesting book and has a lot um, to say. And so I thought this is a prayer I found that um, I guess that if you are opening up the Bible and about to read the book of Isaiah, this might be a prayer that is helpful to you. So the Lord be with you. Also with you. Heavenly Father, my understanding can sometimes be limited of all you are and the untold mysteries that surround the triune Godhead and the incarnate word of God. Yet you love me so that you came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to die for my sins so that I might receive the good tidings of great joy, which has been given to all people. The joyful news that by grace through faith in him, I have been forgiven of my sins. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells in me. Comfort me as I read and learn more about the prophet Isaiah. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are back uh, with Dr. Tony. You know, remember last week he gave us a good overview of uh, Hebrew prophecy and how we read that as folks proclaiming um, God's word rather than predicting the future. Uh, and so that's going to shape how we look at these. We're going to start with Isaiah. Isaiah, we're going to spend a couple weeks in. It's the longest. It's probably the most renowned prophet. And then we're going to do kind of one week on a bunch of the smaller prophets or, or lesser known prophets. Some of those will even be grouped together. But we wanted Tony um, to come in and give us a, a broad overview of Isaiah generally. And we'll dive into it for a couple of weeks. So welcome back. Thanks for being with us again. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Mary Balfour. Always love being with you guys. I appreciate you having me. Alan, you're right. Um, longest of the prophetic writings, 66 chapters. Uh, longest book in the Hebrew Bible other than Psalms, the most chapters other than uh, the book of Psalms. And by the way, only the book of Psalms is quoted in the New Testament more often than the book of Isaiah. So, so only the Psalms. Yes. So very influential in the Christian tradition as well. To help us talk about the book of Isaiah, we need to do a little bit of history uh, catch up. Our reminder, the, the kingdom we know as Israel is unified under three kings, Saul, David, Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom divides. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel lasts until 722 BC. The Assyrians come, conquer the kingdom. Its citizens are scattered throughout the Assyrian empire and really what had been the northern kingdom never exists again. It's gone. And it is only the southern kingdom of Judah that will continue the lineage of the Hebrew people. Judah lasts until 586, when the Babylonians come, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Most of the people are carried off into the Babylonian empire. And this event becomes known as the exile or the Babylonian captivity. 
It is the most significant event in the life of the Hebrew people other than the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, So certainly for the two generations before and after it, the exile is the most important historical event. So much so that when we talk about Hebrew prophecy, really there, there are three groups. Those who prophesy before the exile, those who prophesy during the exile, and those who prophesy after the exile. Interestingly, the book of Isaiah includes writings from one person who falls into each of those categories. Chapters 1 to 39 were written by the 8th century BCE prophet that we call Isaiah. This is before the Babylonian exile. Chapters 40 to 55 were written by a different prophet during the exile while the people were in Babylon. But then Cyrus of Persia conquers the Babylonians. He begins to let the Jews go home. And the last 10 chapters of Isaiah are written by a post-exilic prophet. Now, this feels strange to us. In our culture, attribution of authorship is a big deal. When we're in school, we get hammered about plagiarism. You don't say you wrote something if somebody else wrote it. It, it, Alan's in Texas, but in South Carolina, where Mary Balfour and I did, the, the president of a major university was let go recently because in a commencement speech, he plagiarized. So that feels like a big deal to us. But we need to remember those are completely modern concepts. Modern writers want to make money. <laughs> they want to have their material copyrighted. That is to say, they don't want somebody to plagiarize what they do. And they want to establish a name for themselves. Ancient writers, now well, there were a few that wanted to leave their name. But for the most part, ancient writers don't really care about those things. And in fact, in the ancient culture, if you could have your writing associated with some great person from the past, that was a much bigger deal than establishing your own name or your own reputation. That's what we have in the writing we call Isaiah. After the 8th century prophet, this exilic prophet comes along. He considers himself to have been schooled in the tradition of Isaiah. He feels like he has the spirit of Isaiah. So his writings get included with Isaiah. Same thing in the post-exilic author. So really what we have in the book we call Isaiah are three books written by three different people. So given that, today we're going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. We're going to focus on the prophet Isaiah who lived in the 8th century BCE. We can date Isaiah's ministry with unusual specificity. Some of these prophets, it's kind of vague. We know it's before the exile or during the exile. But Isaiah tells us that he surrendered to his call from Yahweh in the year that King Uzziah died. Oh, wow, that gives us a very specific date, 742 BCE. We know that he is also, he is still prophesying in 701 BCE when there is a major political and military crisis in Judah because he talks about that. So what does that tell us? One, we have a very good idea of when he lived and prophesied. And two, it tells us that his prophetic career was at least 40 years long because those two events are 40 years apart. 
Tony, let me ask you a question. I feel like that's really rare to have like exact dates, even dates, but then also even more so like how long the ministry was or how long that person was, you know, I, 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 I feel. Yeah, sometimes we're absolutely guessing that we kind of know that, you know, because it mm-hmm. seems so sort of foreign in the Bible in general. And then that, but but then that becomes helpful because we have those two chronological pegs. Then if somebody's a contemporary of Isaiah, well, then that at least narrows that window, you know. So it's really helpful. It's really helpful to have this. We talked about in the overview that by this time the prophets have become very important in, um, in this case, the southern kingdom of Judah. They were in the northern kingdom of Israel also but they've become important sociologically and politically. And there are two huge political events about which the king seeks the counsel of the prophet Isaiah that are important to his ministry. And they both involve the fact that Assyria, with an A at the beginning, Assyria was the major military and political power in the world And two kings, Ahaz, and then later his son, Hezekiah, had the opportunity, or in Ahaz's case, people were trying to compel him to join a military alliance against Assyria. Both times, Isaiah says, trust in the Lord, not in military power or political alliances. But those two events are important. We'll come back to them just a little Uh, But also they illustrate what we talked about last week about how important the prophet has become in the life of the people. He's advising the king. I mean, that's that's about as important as you could get. Also, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all talk about their call experience. Isaiah's is my favorite. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah has this vision of God sitting on the throne of the temple of heaven. The six-winged seraphim, these angelic attendants of God's fly around, constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah's all vision begins with the holiness of God. And it impacts Isaiah in such a way that he just spontaneously confesses not only his own sin, but the sin of his people. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And one of the seraphim take a hot coal from the altar and brings it and touches Isaiah's lips. This marvelous symbol of the purging of sin. Sometimes it's painful, but it's necessary for us to live the way God wants us to live. And then the seraph pronounces, now your lips are clean. So Isaiah's purged lips are now ready to proclaim God's message. The uh, last part of the call is God asking, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, without hesitation, says, here am I, send me. And for those of us who are New Testament people, uh, I think about when Gabriel tells Mary, God wants you to be the mother of Messiah. 
here I am, let it be with me according to your word. It's a very similar kind of pattern. So this experience of the holiness of God propels Isaiah into this long prophetic career, shapes his view of God, and shapes his view of himself, his his recognition of his own need for repentance and and being right with God. Uh, Isaiah then, uh, when we think about the message of Isaiah, this holiness of God permeates Isaiah's message. Isaiah uses the phrase, the Holy One of Israel. Isn't that lovely? Uh, God is the Holy One of Israel. Fifteen times he uses that. When we get to these other two writers who included their writings with this prophet Isaiah, they will use that same phrase, the Holy One of Israel. And the holiness of God is always in Hebrew prophecy, including in Isaiah, connected to justice among people. Because God is holy, God is entitled to call us to live a certain way individually and is entitled to call us to treat each other a certain way. And Isaiah is constantly calling the people to care for the marginalized, the poor, the powerless. And especially if if you're a rich person, you may not want to read Isaiah because he gets after the rich they, because why does he get after them? They're the ones who are so blessed. They have the power to do something. But instead, Isaiah says, you are simply prideful. You think you're rich because you deserve it and you're corrupt and you're greedy. Um, gee, I wonder if that message has any application in 21st century America. I don't know. Right. Um, yeah, Mary Buffel. I was just going to say, and we talk about this in a future podcast, which is weird in the future in the podcast world. But um, both Alan and I had the calling of Isaiah as one of the readings at our ordination. Is that right, Alan? I, I know yeah. I did more speak for you. And our and it is one of the recommended readings in the Episcopal Church for an ordination. And I, you know, I you think about that so often because I think those words really, really, really pertain to being called. Now, whether that is a minister or whether that is a teacher or whatever um, ministry God is calling us into, um, I think when we're feeling that call, it like these words are just so essential to go back through and pray through and, and, and just that here I am. Here I am with your hands up, go and show me what to do. Um, I had a, a wonderful couple in my church go through um, the Curcio experience last year. And for those of you, or last weekend, and for those of you who want to know more about that, let me know. But um, they came over and they were just like, here I am, you know, like use me. And, I'm, and, I, and I love that. But I also was like, but what is God calling you? You know, don't let me be the one to, to to interpret that. How is God calling you? And I think that's what Isaiah does, at least for me. I, I think so, Mary Balfour. And the word, the word that I always come back to is surrender. I say that with my own ministry. I surrendered to ministry after my freshman year in college. And I think a lot of us use that language because that's what it feels like and it's what it looks like in Isaiah 6, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. All right, what else you got? Holiness, the importance of justice, 
And then, of course, repentance and judgment. That's going to be a theme we see over and over in the prophets. Isaiah is no different. Um, Again, Isaiah lives in this time of reward and retribution theology. Jesus will set aside this theology. Jesus will say, nope, that's not how God works. But it's still a, a prevalent view and so Isaiah, as, as he calls the people to repentance, he warns them something bad's going to happen if you don't shape up. And, and that bad thing will turn out to be the exile from, from the point of view of the Hebrew people. Uh, but, but much of what we see in Isaiah is a call to repentance, either because people do not appropriately reverence the holy God or because they do not appropriately show justice and mercy to those who need it in their human dealings. So again, talk about Jesus. We could say the very same thing about him. Uh, And finally, of course, like all the good Hebrew prophets, Isaiah believes that God is sovereign. So on the one hand, God is the God of the nations. That means God can use another nation like Assyria to chasten Israel if God decides to do that. But God is more than the God of the nations. God is the God of individuals. God is the God of persons. That means God has the right to tell us how to live, to call us to treat one another justly, to call us to care for widows and orphans, to call us to feed the hungry and take care of the poor. If we don't do that, the sovereign God is entitled to tell us to repent to shape up. And by the way, the Hebrew word for repent is shuv, which also means return. That's what repentance is. I've been going off apart from God. Repentance is returning to God, returning to the path that God wants for my life. So God of the nations, God of individuals. And finally, this sovereign God is the God of the covenant. This is the God who called Israel into a special relationship through Abraham. But since that has happened, There has arisen in Israel one individual who more than any other represents both the people and the purpose of Israel, and that is King David. David is the one who conquers Jerusalem, who makes it the capital, who brings the Holy of Holies there. And so uh, part of Isaiah's message of God's sovereignty is If we don't shape up, something bad's going to happen, and historically something bad does happen. But Isaiah insists that the God who set Israel apart will never abandon Israel. Ultimately, Jerusalem, also known as Zion, you'll read about Zion in uh, the book of Isaiah. Jerusalem will ultimately be restored, and the covenant will ultimately be fulfilled. And as as we see over and over in Scripture through the Holy Spirit, God's message to Israel is on some level a message to us. So we, we can say the same thing. God is entitled to tell us to live a certain way. God is entitled to call us to repentance when we don't. God is entitled, this is over my pay grade, but God is entitled to find ways to chasten or correct us But finally, as Isaiah says, God never abandons us. Whatever God does always has a redemptive purpose. And in the end, just as God's covenant with Israel will be fulfilled, God's covenant with us through Jesus Christ 
will be fulfilled. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about that word covenant. And Alan, I want to ask you what that means to you. And Tony, I want to ask you what that means to you. Because I, and I've discussed this before, I've, when I was a child, my parents wrote this covenant out because I kept quitting things. And, you know, like, oh, yeah, I want to take dance lessons. Oh, yeah, I want to take music, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I'd like to hear what that word means to y'all because I feel like we do not take that um, as seriously as we should. So Alan, tell me what, what that means. To you. Yeah. I mean, I see it's a agreement between two parties, but it's more than a contract, right? You think about a wedding, you can go to the courthouse, mm-hmm. you can file some paperwork, you can have a judge say some words and sign off on a thing. That's a contract, right? You're legally married and entitled to that. It's a little bit different when you have a friend or a clergy person or someone else who officiates at the wedding there. I mean, ultimately, the contract gets signed, but but there's something deeper about that. You're committing to something in front of a community. You're committing to something in front of um, trusted folks. You're committing to something other than just to like abide by the terms of the contract. To me, a covenant signifies there's something deeper. It's the spirit as opposed to just the letter of the contract. Yeah. That's well said, Alan. What about you, Tony? Because I think it's such a big part of Isaiah is this covenant. That's yeah. why I wanted to yeah. dig a little bit deeper in that. Yeah. The, the, Alan said it very, very well. The only thing I would add is God's covenant with Israel, like marriage is a partnership. My wife and I are equal partners. I do not have authority over her. She does not have authority over me. God's covenant with Israel is unique. And remember, listen, when you get to Jeremiah, you're going to get to talk about a new covenant. And that, of course, we'll get to talk about also when we get to Jesus. Last Supper, this is a new covenant in my blood. So in these covenants, someone who would be entitled to operate from power instead chooses to operate from love. Yeah. Make us equals when we're not really equals. Yes, that I think that's what I was like trying to get to the heart of. And because I think we think in such like terms of our own lives and really mm-hmm. this is a covenant that is so much bigger than us. Right. And it gives God power and authority. Right. And that we are resigning and saying, yes, Lord, I'm yours. And I think that's again, back to what Isaiah was saying and most relationships in our lives, it's equal footing, but that's not what this is. Um, it, it's just not. And um, I think we can forget that a lot of times. So I just, that's why I wanted to dig into it. Yeah. All right. Do I have time to talk about Isaiah seven fourteen? Yes. You got about four minutes. Okay. <laughs> uh, probably the most famous verse from Isaiah among Christians is Isaiah seven fourteen. A woman will conceive and bear a child. They will call his name Emmanuel. Famous to us because Matthew pulls that out, and it's in Matthew one twenty three. But in Matthew, it says virgin. Mm. Without getting too bogged down in language stuff, the word Matthew uses Parthenos, the name of the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. Parthenos can mean either a young woman or a virgin. The Hebrew word means young woman, no question about it. But 
But Matthew found the right word that he could say, oh, this is a fair translation, but it gives it a new meaning. The emphasis on Matthew is the fact that Mary is a virgin when Jesus is conceived. In its original context, this was one of these military and political crises. Syria and Israel were trying to force Judah to join a military alliance. Isaiah tells King Ahaz, don't do it. And as a sign, here's something in the future. A woman will bear a child, and by the time the child is weaned, age three, this military alliance will have failed. That's the point. That's why he brings the woman and the child into the story. As always with the prophet, this future event is going to confirm God's will in the present. So Matthew takes that from its original context and completely changes it. And that's fair. The New Testament writers do this all the time. In fact, the Hebrew prophets do the same thing. They'll take something from the past and reinterpret in light of Yahweh what Yahweh is doing right now. And so Matthew does the same thing. I don't mind saying that. But we should say, if we're going to be students of Isaiah, we should say in Isaiah, it is not for the prophet a messianic prophecy. Uh, Maybe what Matthew would say is, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this passage in Isaiah turned out to be even more true than the prophet himself realized. But it's helpful to distinguish what does a passage mean in its context And then what meaning might we find it in later on? Yeah, super helpful. Let me me close with one other thing. Isaiah, along with Micah, give us the longest duplicate passages in two books of the Old Testament. There is a passage in Isaiah 2 that in the Hebrew is like 90% identical to a passage in Micah. So either one knew it from the other or they both knew it from a common source. But but I thought this would be a perfect way to end this introduction to Isaiah. Isaiah 2.2, in the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be raised above all the hills and the nation shall stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and arbitrate between many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their swords into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. Amazing, not only because it is a duplicate, but because it is this beautiful articulation of the kingdom of God. And if you didn't know any better, you might say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth said that. Right, absolutely. Oh my gosh, perfect way to end. Thank you, Tony. You will be back to talk to us more. Um, Can't wait. Listeners, remember, as always, we love you, but most importantly, God does.